privilege of the church to engage in communion together. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Peter 3. Just like last week, um, I will ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. I'll read it and then we'll pray and begin. So if you would, please, please rise. 1 Peter 3, 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to open it, to engage with it. Lord, as we, as we gather in remembrance of you and praise of you to glorify you, set us aside. Whatever weights we carry, whatever personal baggage we bring, whatever personal opinions we bring, Lord, set them aside before the cross, before your word. Make us holy. Make us holy people. Make us a holy church. We submit to you in this. We celebrate you. We praise you. We are so grateful for what you have gone through on our behalf. We want our lives to proclaim your glory, your excellencies. I ask that this time would be a continuation of that worship. We also thank you for the offering, that we have a chance to return to you what you've given to us. And we ask that that would be an act of worship every day as we give. Give me your words, Lord. Teach us as only you can. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so we're in 1 Peter 3. Last time we were looking at 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12. And this, we're, we're coming to a very interesting section on 1 Peter 3, where the, the, the verses kind of all built, I mean, the whole thing has been building together, right? It's one cohesive letter. But what we see in verses 9 through 12, what we looked at last week is, hey, here are the behaviors that should define how the Christian engages with the unbelieving world. Here is what should determine the Christian's behavior and approach and response to and heart for the unbelieving world. And then in verses 13 through 17, he's like, and you know what? If you do all these things, you're still going to probably wind up persecuted and hated and reviled and slandered. And that's okay. Because here is now your proper perspective on that suffering. So he lays out in verses 9 through 12, here's how you approach the hostile, unbelieving world. They're probably going to reject that approach. That's okay. Here are the principles that now give you a proper perspective on suffering, on that rejection. And then in verses 18 through 22, which we'll look at, he then lays out examples of this and standards of this. But today we're looking at 13 through 17. So in light of how we respond to the unbelieving world and how we treat the unbelieving world, here's how we now have the right perspective on suffering. 
And a quick recap of verses 9 through 12, we looked at three behaviors, three heart attitudes, three postures that should define the Christian's response to the unbelieving world and the way the Christian interacts with the unbelieving world. That it must be from a place of love, right? Non-vindictive, a genuine love for the unbelieving world. And that love should look like pure speech that is not deceitful, that is not slanderous, that is not mocking or deriding. And so we looked at these things, and then it concludes with peacemakers, seeking peace, pursuing peace, hunting it down. And we looked at how what he's really getting at there is evangelism, pointing people to reconciliation with God. So he lays out those behaviors in 9 through 12, and then he comes to verses 13 through 17, and he says, okay, if you do these things and you get mistreated for it, that's a good thing. Blessed are you. It's much better to suffer for doing righteousness than for doing evil. So if you are suffering doing righteous things, here is how you maintain a proper perspective on that. And I think this section, I mean, I think the entirety of Scripture is relevant in our lives today. But I think this section really speaks to a lot of where the American church struggles with. I don't think we always have a great perspective on suffering and on being persecuted by the world around us. And so we're going to look at some really, really neat things that Peter lays out here in verses 13 through 17. My prayer, my hope is that God will use this to shift our perspective. And the first thing we see in verses 13 and 14 is really a question of where are we investing our emotional energy? Where are we investing? You've got money, you want it to grow, you want your bank account to do well, you want to be able to retire someday. We invest our money in things. You're like, maybe I don't have a 401k. You still invest your money in things, right? When you're looking at your house and you're like, okay, I could buy this rug for $10 or this rug for $50. I am choosing to invest in the more expensive rug because I anticipate it will last long. So we are all constantly investing. We're all constantly making a conscious decision of here are the resources I have. I am choosing where to allocate those resources and what I think will be most beneficial in my life. So verses 13 and 14, we see the question of where are we investing our emotional and mental energy? Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Zealous for good compared to fear and troubling. And so I think the first thing we need to look at is we need to consider... Am I more emotionally invested in a zeal for the Lord, a zeal for his kingdom, a zeal for his word, a zeal for his mission, a zeal for his people, a zeal for the lost world? Or do I reserve zeal for God after I've gone through my stress and anxiety and fear over the world? Okay, well, let me be troubled by the news headlines first. Let me be freaked out by the latest report first. Let me be stressed about this first. And then what's ever left over, God, then I'll give you that energy. Then I'll get to the zeal for you. But first, let me just get this fear and troubling out of the way. Where are we investing our emotional energy? And where we are investing our emotional and mental energy largely depends on our perspective on the world and our perspective on the situation in the world. There is no denying that things seem grim at times, frequently depending on your perspective. There is no denying that it is troubling or tempting to be troubling, 
When we look at headlines of war, of economic disaster, of social strife. But what is our perspective on this? First Corinthians, I told the worship team that this is one of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians 4. I was like, there's a very real chance I just wind up kicking over this podium. And so if I do, we're just we're gonna charge out the doors and go get it. But I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 4. When you consider your perspective on the world around you, when you consider your perspective on the current state of affairs, on political situations, on economic situations, on social situations, when you consider everything that's going around, ask yourself, does your view line up with 1 Corinthians 4? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." Amen. I mean, really, you guys listen to we are perplexed but not destroyed, crushed but not abandoned. Like, you can listen to that and not stir up within you. You don't hear that and think, yeah, let's go do this. Let's fight. This light and momentary trouble is nothing compared to the glory of eternity. Amen. That's the response that our hearts should have. Man, you should read 1 Corinthians 4 every morning and be like, all right, world, it's battle time. Let's go get it. And that is the perspective on suffering that we need. Not woe is us, woe is the church, but wow, what an opportunity we have. I've shared with you guys before, I love history. I love reading biographies about history, accounts of history. And one of my favorite attitudes comes from a marine sergeant in the pacific uh, during world war ii he's over in the pacific theater and he gets woken up in the middle of the night by one of his underlings and he's, they're like hey we're in trouble our outpost is completely surrounded and he gets up and he grabs his jacket and he says excellent they have nowhere to run that should be the attitude of the church you think we're surrounded by darkness? Great. They have nowhere to run. I mean, if we're surrounded by a hostile, unbelieving world, then what that tells me is, okay, our testimony can go in either direction, and it's going to hit darkness. It's going to hit the people who need to hear it. If I turn my flashlight on right now in this room, you wouldn't notice the light very much. Why? Because it's bright. It's well lit. But when it's dark... That's when light has a chance to shine. That's when light has a chance to make a difference. So it devastates me when I hear Christians bemoaning the state of things today. 
We spend so much energy complaining about the world today. We spend so much energy on a pessimistic, negative, cynical perspective. It's temporary. It doesn't change our mission. So what if the church is being persecuted like never before? What that means is we have a chance for our light to shine like never before. This is the perspective we are called to. This is what Peter lays out. Are we zealous for good? Zeal, burning passion. Is our zeal for what is good, for what is right? Is that where we choose to invest ourselves? Because what he says in verse 13, he says, you are blessed in this. And that word blessed doesn't mean easy peasy front row parking spot at Walmart. Blessed means highly privileged. Peter says, church, when you suffer for doing righteousness, that is your privilege. That is your honor. And this is a high privilege. This is a high honor. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 21. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Ugh, that doesn't sound good. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be brought before people who disagree with me. Jesus, surely your next line is, I'm really sorry you have to go through that, right? No, Jesus says you will be persecuted this will be your opportunity to bear witness. It is a worthless investment of our time to say, why aren't things like they were 30, 40 years ago? The church was so much better back when. Things were so much better back when. What does that do for us? Nothing. Take that energy, take that passion, take that zeal, and invest it in an opportunity to bear witness. This is what Jesus says. It's a beautiful perspective. It's one the church sorely needs because this is our privilege to be peacemakers, to be those who enter out into the world, who wade into the thick of battle and fight for people to be reconciled to God. This is our honor, and we need to pursue that honor. And considering this idea of zeal and energy, where we invest ourselves with the idea, with the goal, with the mission of bearing witness, what does Peter go on to say? With this in mind, prepare yourselves to do what? Prepare yourselves to just huddle up and talk to one another. Prepare to just stick by what you believe. Yeah, we're, we need to stick by what we believe. We need to know what we believe. We're called to stand firm on what we believe. But what does Peter go on to say as part of this, as part of this zeal for good? He says, be prepared to give a defense to what you believe. That word that is translated, give a defense, it's apologia. It's where we get apologetics. This is a big, scary word in the church. Nobody likes this word. Does anybody remember when I was teaching classes, I don't know, four or five years ago, 
and I taught a class that was called Answering the Questions Christians Hope They're Not Asked. And we, one week we looked at why can I believe the Bible is true? One week we looked at why should I believe the resurrection is true? One week we looked at if God is good, then how could hell exist? Right? There are questions that we as Christians are like, please don't ask me that, please don't ask me that, please don't ask me that. You all loved that class. I'm not making it up. Every week, every last week of class, we did a, a response feedback. Your feedback was that was the favorite class that we did in like four years. Does anybody remember that conversation we had on that last week if you were there? I opened up the last 10 minutes. I was like, okay, what should we do for the next class? Who's got ideas? Who's got feedback? It was kind of quiet. And so I said, what if we did like an apologetics two? Like another round of apologetics. And one of you, who I love very dearly, said, oh, no, 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 I would not go to an apologetics class. And I said, well, I hate to burst your bubble. You just spent eight weeks at an apologetics class. And the response was, oh, wait a minute, that's apologetics? Oh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. See, we've made apologetics this huge, terrifying word that's reserved for, like, you know, the PhD-level Christians. Like, okay, Ken Ham, you take care of apologetics and leave all us peons to do our thing. Apologetics is for all of us. Because apologetics is being prepared to make a defense for what you believe. Make no mistake, Christian, intellect should be part of our faith. We should be going deeper in our understanding of what we believe and our ability to articulate it. Our ability to articulate it biblically, but what does he include in there? What does Peter say? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. My coworker doesn't want to talk to me about the Bible anymore. Well, why not? Well, because last time we did it, I was arrogant and sarcastic. All right, well, that's on you. You're not engaged in apologetics. We're called to do this with gentleness and respect, but we are called to do this. The number, I, maybe not number one, top two reasons I hear why Christians tell me they don't engage in evangelism. Peacemaking, what we looked at last week, pursuing peace, the reconciliation of unbelievers with God. One of the top two reasons I hear why more Christians don't do that is, well, they're going to ask me a question that I don't know how to answer. Okay, have you studied? No. I went and I took my ordination exam. It went well, praise God. You know why? Because I studied beforehand. Because I got together with other Christians who were going through the same thing. And James and I once a week got together to study, to go deeper in our understanding, to say, hey, God gave us his word. I bet there's a reason for that. I mean, if all faith is is John 3.16, then why isn't the Bible a two-by-four note card? If that's the only part of the Bible I need to know, then what's the point of Romans? Why is Thessalonians in here? Why is the Old Testament in here? Maybe I'm called to know it. Maybe Paul was on to something in Acts 20 when he says to the church at Ephesus, hey, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. 
This is what we are called to. Proverbs 9.9, give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. 1 Corinthians 13.11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We're going to go back to this idea. But what he's getting at is a maturation of faith, a growing of faith. 1 Corinthians 14.20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Ephesians 4.11-14, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Intellect is part of faith. Seeking a deeper understanding of what we believe is part of our faith. It is built on a very simple foundation. Jesus died, Jesus resurrected. Paul says, I came and I resolved to know nothing among you except those things. He's not talking about I wasn't able to engage in any other conversations. He's saying this is the foundation of the gospel. This is what it's built on. But you'll see as we go on, he lays out examples of what he engaged in with unbelievers in an effort to take the gospel to the world, in an effort to make a defense, apologia, for what he believed. Guys, this has been a part of the church since day one. Acts 6, 8-10, Then some rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Acts 17, 1-3, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. If God's so good, why does hell exist? If God's so good, why did anybody have to die? I've been asked these questions by unbelievers. These are real questions. Could you answer them? If somebody came to you and was like, all right, you claim to believe in a good God? Talk to me about this hell thing. He can't just snap his fingers and we're all in heaven. That's why I believe in universalism. I mean, these are, the, these are the issues that Paul is debating with the unbelieving world. Acts 17, 16 through 17. At Athens, so Thessalonica, Athens. At Athens, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Acts 18, 1 and 4, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts 18, 27 through 28, when he arrived in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerly refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. 
showing by the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled those messianic prophecies. If someone came to you and said Jesus wasn't really the Messiah, he doesn't meet the Old Testament standards, are we prepared to make a defense for that? This was part of Paul's ministry. Acts 19, 1 and 8, Paul came to Ephesus for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, this is a verse my guess is you'll recognize. And we've made this verse all about our internal thought life, and it applies to our internal thought life. But 2 Corinthians 10, 5 comes in a section where Paul is describing his ministry work not his internal thought life. And in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ah, Sam, loophole. You kept saying Paul's name. You said Stephen's name. This is just for the leadership of the church. This is just for the people in charge. This is just for the bigwigs. Not for me. Well... What's the context of 1 Peter? Is Peter writing to Paul? Is Peter writing to James or John? No. Peter is writing to the scattered, exiled believers. He is writing to the church. Colossians 4, 5, and 6, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Jude 1.3, which we're going to get to in our Bible study coming up in a few weeks. He says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, look, I was going to write to you about salvation, but I feel burdened to instruct you on how to refute heresy and false doctrine that's popping up within the church. I feel burdened to prepare you to defend proper doctrine. This is your responsibility. This is the church's responsibility to know these things, to be ready to make a defense, to take a stand. So that when empty philosophies pop up, when false doctrines pop up, when the winds of human thought pop up, we are prepared and we are grounded and we can engage and we can persuade. This is what we're called to. And this is not a burden. This is an honor. It goes back to a proper perspective. When things get hard for the church, when things get difficult for the church, when things look grim for the church, Jesus says in Luke 21, this is your opportunity to witness. What have we already looked at in 1 Peter? The honor of being the priesthood. The honor of being those who declare the name of the Lord. The honor of being those who take the terms of reconciliation with God to the unbelieving world. The right the honor, the gift. We have been allowed to be a part of making a defense for what we believe. What a joy that is. And so it goes back to the question of where is our zeal? Where is our energy? Where is our passion? Is it for what is righteous? Is it for what is good? Is it for the word of the Lord? Or is it for fear or troubling? Is it for panic and anxiety? 
Here's statements that we make. But we have to understand that there's actually a rebuke when we make these statements. When we say, this isn't for me. When we say, well, this isn't, this isn't my calling. This isn't my responsibility. When we say, no, you know what? I don't need to do this. I'm excused from this. This isn't for me. I'm good with where I am. There's a rebuke there. It's gentle, it's loving, but it's there nonetheless. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 2. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. He rebukes the church in Corinth. Look, you should be more mature in your faith at this point. I should be able to feed you with deeper things, but I can't. You're resisting it. Hebrews 5.11, starting in 5.11, going through the start of chapter 6, speaking about apostasy, about drifting from proper teaching, drifting from right doctrine, about false teaching. He says, against this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits." In Hebrews, he's like, guys, we, we shouldn't still be on milk. We should be on deeper, solid things. I shouldn't have to relay these elementary foundations. So before we start to say, well, this isn't for me, consider these rebukes. Consider this calling. And let it lead us back to, do I have a right perspective on this? Because if I'm just so concerned with being troubled by the world and being afraid of the world, then I'm not going to spend any time wanting to prepare myself to evangelize the world. And that leads us to say things like, well, I'm afraid I'm not smart enough. We don't say I'm afraid, but it's what we're getting at. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, Sam, dude, I'm not a student. Like, I, I didn't like school. I didn't do well in school. I'm just, I'm more of a doer with my hands. I'm not, I'm afraid I'm not smart enough. Acts 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It has never once been about where we score on an IQ test. It has never once been about our enjoyment of algebra in eighth grade. Or whenever you take algebra, I was terrible at math and I tried to block it out from my memory. It's never once been about your high school GPA. I dropped out of kindergarten. That has nothing to do with your ability to share the gospel. It's never once been about, I'm afraid I'm not smart enough. I mean, if our tombstones could all read, here lies a common man who was with Jesus. 
That's all the epitaph needs to be. Here lies a common woman who was with Jesus. Acts 4.13. It's not about our fear if we're smart enough. Yeah, but no, you really don't understand. Like, I just, I can't understand this stuff. I won't understand. I'm worried that if I start to study these things, it'll be beyond me. I won't be able to keep up with it. I won't be able to wrap my mind around it. Not like you. Not like the elders. I just, I, I can't understand. John 14, 26. Jesus speaking, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Who's more powerful, you or the Holy Spirit? Answers the Holy Spirit. I didn't want to give anybody a chance to accidentally miss the question. I'm afraid I can't understand. I got great news for you, friends. The Holy Spirit is a way more powerful and competent teacher than you and I are incompetent students. Jesus says this. James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Where's our faith? Do we really think that if we genuinely went before the Lord, I'm talking genuinely, if we humbled ourselves and said, God, you know what? I do struggle with understanding. I do struggle with reading. I do struggle with grasping these things. But I want to know this stuff. I want to have an understanding that allows me to evangelize the hostile world. I want to have an understanding where I am prepared to make a defense for the questions that the world has about you. Would you give me that wisdom, Lord? Do we really think God's going to be like, nah? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask for it. So maybe it's not, I'm afraid I can't understand, but maybe it's, I'm unwilling to ask for the wisdom to understand this stuff because I don't want to accept the responsibility of sharing the gospel. Maybe that's what's holding us back. I'm afraid I won't know what to say. I can read it. I can... I can read it, I can go to a Bible study, I can listen to you talk about it, and 20 minutes later, it's out of my mind. I have forgotten it entirely. I can't retain it. I could read my Bible 24 hours a day, and, and I won't remember it. I just, I can't remember it, so that's why I don't engage in these conversations. Luke 12, 11 through 12, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Back to John 14, 26, The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance what you have learned. I say it again, the Holy Spirit is a far more competent teacher than you and I are incompetent students. The Holy Spirit is a far more powerful reminder then you and I are forgetful. So maybe our reluctance to engage in this reveals a lack of depth in our understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit and a desire to be submitted to His power in our lives. I'm afraid because I'm not good with words. I stutter. I don't know fancy words. I couldn't use the word apologetics. Great. Don't use it. As we've learned within the own church, the church doesn't like apologetics. Very, I have very little faith that if you walked up to a stranger in Kroger and were like, hey man, instead of buying oranges, let's debate apologetics. That stranger's probably going to walk away. So don't worry about your vocabulary. Don't worry about knowing the big fancy words. 
Yeah, but Sam, I'm afraid because I'm not good with words. Exodus 4, 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God's mastery of the English language is far greater than our difficulty with it. God's power of language, God's power of words, is far greater than our difficulty with it or unfamiliarity with it. So to go back to what Peter said about be zealous for what is good, do not be afraid, do not be troubled, do not be in fear of the world. Where is our zeal? Because when I look at Scripture, I see God is with me, God has empowered me. What did Jesus say in Acts 1? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to do what? To be my witnesses. So I see that God has called me to be his witness. God has empowered me to be his witness. God leads me in being his witness. When I struggle, God is more than sufficient enough to make up for my weaknesses. So the only thing holding me back from being a witness is my unwillingness to engage. So yeah, love the hostile world. Speak to them honestly and purely. Speak about them honestly and purely. Treat them with love and kindness. Extend to them peace, reconciliation with God. Expect them to reject it. Expect them to suffer or to, to persecute you so you suffer, but not all of them. It's the parable of the soil. Yeah, there will be some people who don't want to hear it. But that doesn't stop the farmer from sowing the seeds. What was one of the challenges for this past week? The idea of blessing the city. What was one of the ways we were going to apply it this past week? We were going to do something nice for a stranger. Something kind for a total stranger. Hear how my attempts went. Hey man, could I buy your groceries for you? No. Are you sure? No. Leave. All right. Hey, I know you don't know me. I know we're passing. How can I pray for you today? What? How can I pray for you today? Please go away. Hey, how can I pray for you today? Wow, are you serious? Man, that would, that would mean so much. This is what's going on right now. Thank you. Wow, thank you. That first guy could have been like, no, you can't do anything nice for me. Oh, well, there it goes. And then the Charlie Brown music plays as I walk down the street kicking a rock, right? There are going to be people who you try and share the gospel with, who you try and pursue peace with, and they want nothing to do with it. So we either quit or we press on. We either fall back or we remain in relentless pursuit. We either look at what God has called us to and what he's empowered us for and we go after it, or we don't. Because it's not just about knowing, it's about doing. It's about applying what we know. Mike, you teach CPR. You and I are at a restaurant, I start choking, I need CPR. What is going to save me or help me? You knowing how to perform CPR or you actually performing CPR? Actually performing the CPR. Well, I know how to make a defense for what I believe. Great, are you? Well, no, why not? Well, I'm not talking to anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Okay, cool, expand your circle. Start talking to people who need to know. 
It's not just about knowing how to make a defense. It's about engaging with the world and making a defense to pursue their peace, their reconciliation with the Lord. This is what we have been empowered for. What an honor it is to do this. And so the question that Peter asks, that we're going to ask, is where is my zeal? Is it for this Or am I spending so much time on being afraid about the situation of the world that I have missed my opportunity to witness to them? This is what he calls the church to. So this week, we're going to read Isaiah 41 and 2 Corinthians 4. Look for the themes of the passage in these chapters. Engage in prayer as we continue to grow in prayer. And then we're switching up that last section. We were calling it, you know, apply, do, whatever. We're going to get back to something that's way more biblical in its language, what we're called to. Imitate Jesus. And so this week, as we consider these verses, blessed are you when you suffer for doing righteousness. And we consider the verses from last week about loving the world who persecutes us. Pick one person in your life who has made life very difficult on you. Pick someone who has inflicted pain on you. Pick someone who mocks you, who derides your belief. Pick someone who is part of the world that makes you suffer and then pray for that individual in a way that glorifies God and honors God. Luke 23, 34 is when Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Pray like Jesus. The person who you think of when you think of suffering in this world, you think of your boss, your neighbor, your uncle, whoever. Pray for them in a way that glorifies and honors God. Pray for them like Jesus did as we imitate him. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you have called us to a life of honor and privilege, that you have extended us this right to be your ambassadors, to have a ministry of reconciliation. I thank you that you have equipped us for this. You haven't just given us our mission. You've given us the equipment for it. You filled us with your Holy Spirit. May we walk in step with him. May we be prepared to make a defense for what we believe. Use us to impact this world, God, when we consider the question of where we spend our energy. Lord, teach us to not waste our energy on fear. Teach us to not waste our time on fear. Remind us that we are free in you to be filled with a zeal for you. Light this church on fire, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, Otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.